Welcome to the April 8th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today's podcast includes recent studies providing new insights on the use of minimal residual disease measurements to guide treatment in patients with high-risk ALL, the increasing risk of venous thromboembolism among patients with cancer, and the use of tocilizumab in the prophylaxis of acute graft-versus-host disease. Our first research article is entitled, Chemotherapy or Allogeneic Transplantation in High-Risk Philadelphia Chromosome-Negative Adult Lymphoblastic Leukemia by Josef Maria Ribera of the Catalan Institute of Oncology in Badalona, Spain, and co-authors. They report final results of a prospective study, which indicates that allogeneic transplant could be avoided in patients with high-risk Philadelphia chromosome-negative ALL, who have good clearance of minimal residual disease after induction and consolidation treatment. For adults with Philadelphia-negative ALL, treatment remains focused on conventional chemotherapy, followed by allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. It is increasingly accepted in clinical practice that patients with standard-risk ALL may be able to forego transplant in favor of conventional chemotherapy if they have a satisfactory minimal residual disease, or MRD, response at the end of induction or consolidation. By contrast, it remains unclear whether this MRD-guided treatment approach would also apply to adult ALL patients with high-risk features such as older age at presentation, high white blood cell counts, 11Q23 rearrangements, or complex karyotype. Several years ago, in the ALL-AR03 protocol, the Spanish Pathema group showed favorable results using an MRD-based strategy to avoid transplant specifically in high-risk adolescent or adult patients with Philadelphia-negative ALL. However, according to the investigators, the criteria used to define high risk in that study were less stringent as compared to usual criteria. Also, the precise role of MRD was somewhat confounded by that study's use of combined morphologic and MRD assessment for evaluation and treatment assignment. Now, Ribera and colleagues are reporting final results of another Pathema trial, ALLHR11 which looks more specifically at the use of MRD to guide therapy in patients with high-risk Philadelphia-negative ALL. The study includes adolescents and adults with at least one high-risk criterion, including age 30 to 60 years, white blood cell count greater than 30,000 for B-cell precursor ALL, or greater than 100,000 for thymic pro-B early or mature T-ALL, or hypodiploid disease or the presence of an 11Q23 translocation by cytogenetics, or KMT2A rearrangement by molecular analysis, or complex karyotype, defined as five or more unrelated clonal abnormalities. A total of 348 patients with high-risk Philadelphia-negative ALL were enrolled in the study. MRD levels in bone marrow were centrally assessed at several time points in the study, starting on day 14 of a first induction phase. Induction therapy included vincristine, prednisone, denarubicin, and asparaginase for four weeks. The FLAG-IDA regimen was then given as an intensified induction in patients who did not achieve a complete response or had an MRD level of greater than or equal to 0.1% or greater at the end of the first induction. 
Patients in complete response who had MRD levels less than 0.1% after induction and less than 0.01% after three cycles of early consolidation therapy were assigned to further consolidation and maintenance therapy for up to two years. The remaining patients were assigned to allogeneic transplant, provided a suitable donor was available. Results were reported for 218 evaluable patients assigned to chemotherapy and 106 evaluable patients assigned to allogeneic transplantation. By intention to treat analysis, the five-year cumulative incidence of relapse was 45% in the chemotherapy arm and 40% in the transplantation arm. The five-year probability of overall survival was 59% for chemotherapy and 38% for transplantation. Because protocol deviations were seen in a substantial proportion of patients, Investigators also evaluated outcomes by actual treatment given. In this analysis, five-year cumulative incidence of relapse was 40% in the chemotherapy arm and 33% in the transplantation arm. The five-year overall survival was 72% for chemotherapy and 54% for transplantation. Of note, while exhibiting a lower incidence of relapse, the transplanted group included patients with more resistant and poor-risk leukemia indicating the ability of allotransplant to rescue at least some high-risk patients. Unfortunately, the 24% cumulative incidence of non-relapse mortality counterbalanced this anti-leukemic activity and contributed to the poorer results in transplanted patients. Toxicities are summarized in the research article by the investigators. Hematologic toxicities and infections were most common. Liver toxicity, also common was seen mostly in the first induction phase and was attributed primarily to the use of asparaginase as part of the treatment regimen. In his accompanying commentary, Matthew Seftel of the University of British Columbia indicates that these findings suggest that even high-risk patients who achieve MRD negativity may be able to avoid allogeneic transplant without compromising their chances for survival. Unfortunately, Patients in this study were not stratified by Philadelphia-like gene signature, which is now regarded as a major disease-related risk factor in adolescent and young adult patients with ALL. In addition, the study did not incorporate blinitumumab as a treatment for patients with persistent MRD, which according to Seftel, might have further improved outcomes. By incorporating immunotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy conjugates into frontline treatment, it might be possible to improve MRD negativity rates and restrict allogeneic transplant to an even smaller pool of patients. Overall, findings of the current study demonstrate favorable relapse and survival outcomes among adolescent and adult patients with high-risk Philadelphia-negative ALL with good clearance of MRD following induction and early consolidation. According to the authors, these findings might change the current clinical practice recommendation that all adult patients with high-risk disease undergo transplantation. Next, let's turn to a research article entitled Venous Thromboembolism in Cancer Patients, a Population-Based Cohort Study by Fritz Mulder of the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands and co-authors. It has long been known that cancer patients are at increased risk of venous thromboembolism, or VTE, which has been associated with decreased quality of life, increased morbidity and mortality, interruption of cancer treatment, and increased healthcare costs. 
The burden and attendant risks of VTE may be increased by the advent of novel cancer therapies and diagnostic modalities, including CT scans. However, there are few recent estimates of VTE incidence among patients with cancer. Mulder and colleagues sought to provide contemporary estimates using data from population-based health registries in Denmark. Their analysis incorporated a competing risk approach that counted death as a competing outcome event to VTE. Several earlier studies of VTE in cancer did not take into account competing risk of death and thus may have overestimated risk. The study included a cohort of patients with cancer and a cohort of individuals for comparison, randomly selected from the general population. The cancer-specific cohort was constructed based on adult patient data in the Danish Cancer Registry, or DCR. All patients had a first-time diagnosis of solid cancers, Hodgkin lymphoma, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, leukemia, or multiple myeloma between 1997 and 2017. Non-melanoma skin cancers were excluded from the analysis. For the comparison cohort, three individuals from the general population were selected for each cancer patient. Altogether, the analysis included nearly 500,000 individuals with a first-time cancer diagnosis and about 1.5 million individuals with similar baseline characteristics in the comparison cohort. The median age was 68 years and 51% were female. In the cancer cohort, treatments received within the first four months of diagnosis included cancer surgery in 59%, chemotherapy in 27%, radiotherapy in 17%, anti-hormonal therapy in 8.9%, and targeted therapy in 4.2%. Overall, the investigators found a 2.3% cumulative 12-month VTE incidence in the cancer cohort, or nearly ninefold higher than what was found in the comparison cohort where cumulative 12-month incidence was just 0.35%. Cumulative incidence of VTE varied widely by cancer type. In the first six months post-diagnosis, pancreatic cancer had the highest incidence rate, at 156 per 1,000 person years, while melanoma had the lowest, at just 7.3 per 1,000 person years. Risk factors associated with VTE in those first six months after adjusting for potentially confounding factors, included prior VTE, distant metastasis, and surgery within the first four months of diagnosis. Other risk factors for VTE included use of chemotherapy, protein kinase inhibitors, anti-angiogenic therapy, and immunotherapy. A striking increase in VTE incidence over time was observed in the cancer patient cohort. The 12-month cumulative incidence of VTE among cancer patients increased threefold, from 1% to 3.4% over the two decades covered in this study. The increase in incidence was sixfold higher for cancer patients who received chemotherapy or targeted therapy. A post hoc analysis revealed several factors that may have fueled this increase over time in VTE incidence. 12-month survival among cancer patients increased from 62.9% in 1997, to 79.4% in 2017. The proportion of patients receiving chemotherapy within four months of diagnosis likewise increased from 17% in 1997 to 33% in 2017. In addition, the average number of CT scans per cancer patient in the 12 months following diagnosis increased from just 0.17 in 2001 to 1.16 in 2017.
an increase in chest CT use may have led to more incidental pulmonary embolism findings. Indeed, the 12-month incidence of pulmonary embolism in the cancer cohort increased from 0.32% to 2.3% over the two decades of the study, while by contrast, there was no change overall in the 12-month incidence of deep vein thrombosis. In summary, this population-based cohort study utilizing a competing risk approach provides contemporary estimates of VTE risk in a cancer-specific cohort. This includes a substantially higher incidence of VTE among cancer patients as compared to the general population, as well as a marked increase in VTE incidence over time within the cancer cohort. Several limitations of this study should be noted. First, patient data on VTE-associated risk factors such as body mass index, smoking, and use of contraceptives were not available. Second, incidentally detected and symptomatic VTE could not be distinguished. Third, close clinical surveillance after a cancer diagnosis might have led to earlier detection of VTE in the cancer cohort. Fourth, in some of the smaller cancer groups, the hazard ratio could not be calculated because of a lack of VTE events in the comparison cohort. Fifth, cancer treatment was not limited to a single modality and was recorded only during the first four months following cancer diagnosis. Also, as cancer treatments are administered according to cancer type and disease stage, the observed associations between treatments and the risk of VTE may not be causal. Finally, as in all registry studies, misclassification of disease diagnosis codes cannot be ruled out. Despite these caveats, the observed increase in VTE incidence over time is supported by a comparable increase in anticoagulant use among cancer patients. Moreover, the findings remind us of the importance of preventative measures, given recent studies demonstrating the feasibility of primary VTE prophylaxis in patients with cancer. The final research article is entitled, A Phase 3 Double-Blind Study of the Addition of Tocilizumab versus Placebo to Cyclosporin Methotrexate GVHD Prophylaxis by Glenn Kennedy of the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital in Brisbane, Australia, Jeffrey Hill from the University of Washington in Seattle, and their colleagues. Despite the use of prophylactic measures with T-cell-directed immune suppression with agents such as a calcineurin inhibitor and methotrexate or mycophenolate mofetil, acute graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, occurs in 40% to 70% of allogeneic stem cell transplantation recipients. It also remains a significant cause of morbidity and mortality in the first 100 to 180 days following the procedure. Newer approaches, including naive T-cell depletion and the use of cyclophosphamide post-transplant, have the most pronounced impact on reducing incidence of chronic GVHD, leaving an unmet clinical need for new approaches to prevent acute GVHD. Interleukin-6 is recognized as a critical pathogenic cytokine in GVHD and therefore represents a rational therapeutic target. Tocilizumab, a humanized monoclonal antibody against the interleukin-6 receptor, has been evaluated in two phase 1-2 single-arm prospective studies. Based on encouraging data from these two studies, Kennedy and colleagues initiated a randomized placebo-controlled double-blind trial at five centers in Australia to determine the efficacy of tocilizumab added to cyclosporin and methotrexate in preventing grade 2 to 4 acute GVHD. 
The study included adult patients with acute leukemia or myelodysplasia who underwent allogeneic transplantation with T-cell replete peripheral blood stem cell grafts from matched sibling donors or unrelated donors following myeloblative or reduced-intensity conditioning. The primary endpoint was the incidence of grade 2 to 4 acute GVHD at day 100 after transplantation. Of the 145 patients enrolled, 72 were randomized to tocilizumab and 73 to placebo, all of whom received the allocated treatment. Median study follow-up was 746 days. At day 100, the incidence of grade 2 to 4 GVHD for the entire study cohort was 27% for tocilizumab and 36% for placebo, with a hazard ratio of 0.69, but a p-value of 0.23. By day 180, the grade 2 to 4 GVHD incidence overall was 29% for tocilizumab and 40% for placebo. In the unrelated donor subgroup, incidence was 32% for tocilizumab and 48% for placebo. The reductions in acute GVHD in this study were primarily in moderate or grade 2 disease. The incidence of severe, that is grade 3 to 4 GVHD, was similar between groups overall, at 14% for tocilizumab and 13% for placebo, and was also similar in the unrelated donor subgroup. Overall survival was not statistically different, at 71% for tocilizumab and 79% for placebo at a median follow-up of approximately two years post-transplant. Transplant-related mortality was also similar, at 11% for tocilizumab and 8% for the placebo group. Slight delays in time to neutrophil and platelet engraftment were observed in the tocilizumab arm, while liver toxicity and infectious complications were comparable between groups. In their accompanying commentary, Jakob Passweg and Georg Halter of the University Hospital Basel in Switzerland Note the modest effects of tocilizumab on acute GVHD in this trial, but argue that it is too early to abandon the drug. Because GVHD has a complex pathophysiology, it is likely that blocking more than one pathway may be necessary. They argue that larger trials are needed with sufficient power to discern differences in not only GVHD incidence, but also related outcomes of transplant success, including relapse-free survival and non-relapse mortality. You have been listening to Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.